0: the report card with Matt Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Schools do more than teach math and reading. They also shape who we are as human beings. They form us. They try to prepare us to live good human lives and to be good members of society. But what's the guiding vision here? What do schools think makes a life good? What should schools think makes a life good? These are important questions and questions that we tend to not give enough attention to. So for today's podcast, I invited Jennifer Frey to join me. Jennifer is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. She was a principal investigator on the virtue, happiness, and the meaning of life projects. And also, she has a podcast of her own, Sacred and Profane Love, on which she discusses philosophy, literature, and theology. Jennifer, welcome to The Report Card.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: I want to start this conversation by talking about an experience you had at Yale. And you wrote about this in Point Magazine, which we'll link to because it's an interesting piece. But can you just set the stage for us? What was that experience?
1: Yeah. So I was invited to Yale to attend and to debate Laurie Santos and her capacity as the professor of the most uh, sought after class in Yale's history. It was called Happiness and the Good Life. It was a class that was so over enrolled that they had to move it from the largest auditorium at Yale to a music hall. (laughs) And, you know, there had been so much international press about this class. And the conceit of the class was that if you take the class, you will learn about happiness as understood by science. And that you will learn techniques for being happier. Um, And since I had a major multi-million dollar, multi-year research project on happiness and meaning of life and virtue, uh, I was invited by several groups at Yale to attend the class and then to have a sort of informal debate slash discussion with Dr. Santos at Yale so I sat in on her class. The class that day was on techniques for, you know, not procrastinating as much. And and this is know,
0: useful because in this context, right? I mean, there's all these kids. They want to learn. Just give me the notes. Like, give me the class notes when I miss because I want to make sure that I'm happy later. And these are the directions that you follow. We've proven these things scientifically, right?
1: That's right. So she calls it hacking yourself. Okay. Like, good. So the conceit is sort of like you're, you're basically a sophisticated computer. You have to learn how to hack yourself in order to be more successful, right? Yeah. And it was kind of funny because it was the first time I'd ever been to Yale. And it just reminded me so much of large classes at my own university. So, you know, the professor and her veritable army of TAs at the beginning of class hands out a quiz. They take the quiz and then about half the class just leaves. (laughs) So I was like, oh, well, Yale is really not that different. Pursuit of
0: happiness on display, clearly.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, the pursuit of getting a good grade was right. very clearly on display. <laughs>
0: that, uh, yeah. <laughs> some irony. Anyway, keep going.
1: <laughs> yeah. So um, so anyway, I, I went to the class. Um, it was interesting. And then uh, later that night, we had this debate. And it just became clear as the debate progressed, like how much we were not on the same page about what happiness is, and about what it takes to live a truly happy life. Uh, From Dr. Santos's perspective, um, happiness is just feeling good, right? It's all about subjective affect. And so long as you feel good, Um, And she wasn't totally clear about what that means, but there are basically three available options for that sort of subjectivism. Uh, You can just be a straightforward hedonist. (laughs) So at the end of the day, you're happy if you just have more pleasure than pain states. You can be a more sophisticated emotional affect theorist. So you can recognize that, well, it's much more complicated, psychologically speaking, than pleasures and pains. And so you can throw in all kinds of positive emotional affect versus negative emotional affect. And then finally, you can be a life satisfaction theorist. And the difference there is that there has to be a kind of cognitive element to it. So you have to believe that your life is going well. On the, Like you have to uh, be satisfied with your life in some sort of cognitive sense. Um, and that sounds like, that final option sounds like, oh, okay, well, we're finally bringing in a judgment. And so we're looking for some kind of correspondence with reality here, but that's misleading because it's still a form of subjectivism, because there is no third personal objective measure against which we would say your judgment is good or bad.
0: So the short version of these three things is they're all, to some degree, reducible to, well, let's maximize the positive feels, right?
1: Yeah, positivity.
0: (laughs) And you can kind of say, well, we're complicating some of these factors by saying, well, it's multidimensional and so forth. But the short version, the hackable version, is just maximizing those sort of positive states of your brain. Is that fair?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say, you know, maximizing like positive brain states, because that really is all that it boils down to. And this became very clear in my discussion with her, um, because one of the, you know, as a philosopher, whenever anybody presents this kind of either crude or sophisticated subjectivism. Um, I worry about the total lack of connection to reality, like the actual reality of your life. And we know as a matter of empirical fact that people whose whose lives we would objectively say are not going well um, can nevertheless feel good about their lives. So they're like a famous example is sort of like the battered wife syndrome. You know, where a wife is abused and manipulated and treated horribly, um, but she herself does not recognize this. Um, And if you're a subjectivist, the trouble is that you sort of have to bite the bullet and be like, well, yeah, I mean, if she feels good about her life then that's all that matters. And the most extreme version of that is Robert Nozick. Uh, He was a famous philosopher at Harvard. He has this pleasure machine, thought experiment. And the thought experiment goes like this. Well, look, if you could could plug yourself into some kind of virtual reality world where your brain is manipulated such that you experience all and only positive uh, emotional affect And your cognitive assessment of how your life is going is therefore really great, right? Uh, However, you're not actually living a human life, right? You are just laying there. Your brain is being manipulated by something. Uh, You're not living a real human life at all beyond just your nutritive capacities are being kept going, right? So that your brain states can keep going. And so I just said, well, you know, if subjectivism is true, then you should want to get into that machine because you, you, you're you just guaranteed in a way to be happy. And she agreed, <laughs> which is not the standard reply. Uh, <laughs> the standard reply is to sort of be worried about this, but she just sort of like very happily bit the bullet and said, yeah, if you could actually manufacture that, we should all get into the machine. And um, I was kind of shocked by that and thought it was, it just kind of drew out how dystopian <laughs> this, this view actually is, and it's dystopian potential. And just the fact that, you know, there's not this recognition, um, that we are meant for something more, <laughs> right. That, that we're meant for something more and that there is a kind of, um, transcendent dimension to all of this. That if we want to talk about being happy and living well and human flourishing, we are talking about uh, taking our capacities as human beings, like the abilities that we have given the kind of thing that we are, and actually realizing that potential um, by realizing things that are really good, right? And that at an elite institution like Yale... um, I would sort of hope that we are inspiring students to want to achieve a truly excellent life and not settle for this sort of ersatz happiness. Um, But what was interesting to me is that here I am, I'm a professor at South Carolina, so I don't have (laughs) the prestige bias of Yale. And I'm also not a scientist, right? So she has this like double advantage over me because she can speak as an expert right? Well, I I mean, you know, the scientists always somehow really know what's going on and who really cares what the philosophers think. Um, but I think that it's, it's a little bit, I mean, I suppose I would say as someone who knows and teaches the wisdom traditions and not just the Western one, um, you know, there is an alternative here that's not being explored and that arguably... Uh, is offering students more than what Yale is offering them.
0: So, Jennifer, this is an education podcast. And so a question many listeners might be asking is, well, Malchus, why did you bring this woman on here? And there's a good answer to this because schools used to have one conception of what human happiness, of what a good life consists of. And now they may have a a different one or, or one that's substituted for that. And this new conception of happiness may not always be explicitly stated, but I think it runs through much of what happens in schools. And and we'll get to K-12 later. But first, Jennifer, can you briefly sketch out an alternative conception of human happiness, the one that wasn't taught in that class at Yale?
1: Yeah, so I don't think that. Human flourishing is something that you can manipulate yourself into. So I think that when we when we talk about human happiness or human excellence or human flourishing, first and foremost, we're talking about human beings and the kinds of capacities that they have, uh, which shape right, the potential for the sorts of excellences that they can achieve, right? Capacities or just abilities. And we have rational capacities. Rational capacities are interesting because they're not determined in one way or another. They are, as it were, open in interesting ways. And so they need to be habituated so that they act consistently in certain ways over others. And that notion of habituation... Or uh, disposition—that is where virtue and vice gain traction, right? So if I'm predisposed, if I'm predisposed to tell the truth, right, in a stable way, and I also know why telling the truth is an important aspect of human life, then we can say—and I do it with ease and pleasure. Like it's not hard for me to tell the truth. I'm the kind of person that typically does it. Then we can say that I have the virtue of honesty right? And you can go on through the list in that way, courage, justice, practical wisdom, etc. Um, These are habits that secure like an actually good life for us. We can talk about why we need these virtues. We can talk about the explicit connections between developing and exercising these virtues and actual human excellence. Um, and – We are talking about achieving the real good, right? And that demands, right, sacrifice and hard work. You don't get goodness for free, right? And so there's no way to, as it were, hack yourself or get around the fact that what we're talking about is becoming a good person and that there is an ineliminable element of freedom in this. And that the reason why the hard work is worth it is because being a good person, uh, being the kind of person who, for example, can lead our institutions and guide the next generation and be an exemplar for other people, like, why we have to be thinking in terms of education, right? We have to be thinking about why that project is so important. Um, It's not just about, and this is one sense in which uh, this whole experience was a jumping off point for me for thinking about the failures of higher education. Uh, We tend to think that in higher education, we are just giving students the skills that they need to succeed, uh, where success is measured in terms of uh, career, right, Uh, things like this. Um, and I don't think we are putting enough thought <laughs> into the question of, well, actually, are we training people to be good human beings and citizens, <laughs> right? But that that's really what makes higher education higher. It's not just about skills and knowledge, but it is about something much larger, and we used to aspire to that very explicitly in higher education. I think somewhere along the way, we, we really lost our way. And uh, I'm interested in reorienting us back to really explicitly saying that the aim of education is human flourishing, right? And, the, and if we want to talk about the liberal arts, the arts that make a man free, the arts that prepare a human being for more than a life of work. Uh, We really cannot do that in absence of talking about human flourishing and virtue.
0: So there's a vision of human flourishing that is achieved through a set of virtues, which to most listeners ears are going to sound pretty old fashioned. But you said something there that I think is clear. And that is is that these virtues are not hackable. It sounds like to some degree, the virtues have sort of a structure that has to be not tricked into or not re-engineered, but sort of, I mean, use the word habituated, but it's sort of lived out. I mean, that's the path right. through them. And you talked about how our higher education institutions aren't really rooted towards that. I mean, how would you say that plays out? For instance, is this just a, well, our higher education institutions are attuned to the remunerative capacities that they can give to students? Is is that the primary driving focus? Is it more uh, a narrow view of disciplines that is the nicheness of universities that are driving these things? I mean, where is the loss?
1: Well, I think the loss is in a narrowing of vision of what higher education is really for, right? And you can, obviously, the higher ed landscape has many different kinds of institutions that serve different communities. And a place like Yale is an extremely elite institution that has a lot of power, right, to shape culture and society because students graduating from Yale, just in virtue of graduating from Yale, have a lot of power. Um And so that's the reason that we tend to focus on institutions like Yale. But of course, you know, institutions of higher learning uh, include even, I would say, community colleges, um, small liberal arts colleges, religious schools, schools like mine, which are sort of uh, flagship state, R1 universities, et cetera. Um, and And they serve slightly different communities. And there's a certain amount of diversity there that I think is fine. Um, but if we focus in on the elite institutions that tend to shape the next generation of leaders in this country, um, I think that we need to be especially serious about thinking, uh, thinking about what sort of education they need to be good leaders, right? And I think that we should be worried, right, If we are graduating students whose only goal, you know, is to, for example, make as much money as possible by whatever means or um, to live a kind of self-centered, hedonistic life, et cetera. I'm, you know, obviously I'm not accusing Yale of only graduating those kinds of people, um, but I do think that you have to look at the sort of education offered and ask yourself in what sense it's meaningfully calling students to something higher. And I think that in general, liberal arts education has lost its sense of itself as the education for a free man, man in the sense of, you know, homo or amp- you know, not not in the sense of gendered, but just at, for a human being. And when we think about that freedom, we're thinking about much more than freedom from coercion or something like that. But we're thinking about an inner freedom, a freedom to know and pursue, right, what is really true, what is really good, and what is really beautiful. And that used to be the self-conception under which the liberal arts understood itself, It's no longer the self-conception under which the liberal arts understands itself, if it even calls itself the liberal arts and not something else like the humanities. And uh, I think that it would be good if we reflected on ways to get back to that. Um, And so I've just been thinking a lot about um, what are the ways, pedagogically speaking, that in a liberal, a truly liberal university – Uh, where we're not imposing one vision of the good life on everyone uh, because we would fail to be liberal if we were doing that, Uh, what are the ways that we can bring that back where we make higher education more than just higher in costs (laughs) uh, but truly higher, right? Calling students to something higher. And that is something that I would be happy if we were simply – Reflecting more explicitly on that, if we were recognizing the sense in which there is mission drift, uh, it would be it would be a good thing.
0: So, when we think about this, you've been talking about it in the context of universities or higher education. I'm going to guess that you wouldn't say that this is solely a problem in higher education. I deal a lot with K twelve work, and am very concerned mm-hmm. that we actually have sort of the same shaping influence that yeah. has taken higher education into this structure. And it also affects K-12. Now you can, you could say, mm-hmm. hold on a second. I don't think you should impose virtues on third graders, or I don't know if you should have these discussions in high school when we can't get the kids to learn algebra effectively, which is mm-hmm. is more basic. But I wonder just the general shaping trend about like, You know, what is the North Star that education is focused on? Would you say that the same problems that you're sort of citing in the higher education realm are present throughout our education system?
1: Absolutely. And I think it's a symbiotic system, (laughs) right? K through 12 and higher education, they shape and feed off one another in very interesting and explicit ways. And I think as soon as you start to think about the problems of higher education, you're immediately thrown back into primary secondary education. And then when you start to think seriously about the problems of primary and secondary education, you're immediately thrown back to the problems of higher education. I just, I think it's a package deal. And so we need to, we absolutely need to be thinking about what's going on in the K through 12 landscape. And that's something that i started writing about as well. Uh, I think that you see a lot of interesting similarities So you see a focus on skills and outcomes, right? And one of the things that really any professor will tell you is that the biggest obstacle to really teaching our students is that they have been trained just to obsess about their grades. And it's um, especially in the traditional liberal arts um, that can be a huge obstacle to learning right? Because they don't want to take risks. And the reason they don't want to take risks is because they are terrified of not getting an A. And they're terrified of not getting an A because that grade determines everything after, right? So if you're a freshman, it might determine whether you get into the specialized program you want to be in, If you're a junior, it might determine whether you're up for the good scholarships or whether you're going to get into the grad program you want to get into. In the primary, secondary space, it determines whether or not you're going to get into the college you want to go to. And so all of the focus isn't on learning and growing, which essentially involves making mistakes and taking risks and putting yourself out there. Um, but it's on the outcome, right? And I would also say, since No Child Left Behind became federal law, uh, we have such uh, an emphasis on testing and test results that I think have been hugely (laughs) detrimental to education. Uh, Because again, it's just about outcomes. That's what we look at. And we're not looking at progress and growth. I mean, I'm much more impressed by a student who is actually growing, right, who has failed and makes mistakes, but has really shown growth over a period of time, than someone who just has gotten A's the entire time. Um, but when we look at students uh, for admissions, right, we get really worried about those C's or whatever, uh, and I and I think it's a huge it's a huge mistake, and we ought to be looking at. Uh, what their trajectory has been. And that also includes so much more than their grades, you know? And again, because what what does the grade really reflect? And the truth is you don't know. (laughs) Like when you're just looking at a transcript, you don't know. And so I think the focus on outcomes and the focus on skills, right? There are lots of different reasons why that happened. But I think it's the biggest uh, obstacle to truly educating people, right? And we, we lose this idea that education is about formation. It's about forming you. Um, and that's not reflected in test results and grades, right? That measures your skills. And those are important. Those are incredibly important. But it's not at all uh, the end game right that was supposed to be a means to something that was higher and that and that's what's been lost right um and you could look at almost you could look at so many aspects of the education landscape right including like how much money goes into tutoring for these tests and to teaching to the test and how much of a real education gets lost in that process
0: when you talk about this i mean you've talked Hear about sort of shaping forces and assessments and how sort of education has kind of developed into a competitive sport in that sense, it's had a lot of sort of negative effects. But I also wonder just about the content in teaching. I mean, to go back to your discussion of virtues, I don't think that virtues and talk about virtues is a large part of what is typically taught in K 12 education. It just sounds right, it sounds old fashioned. Why does it sound old fashioned? Because it sounds like ways of speaking and topics that we might have once talked about, but now we have sort of progressed past. Do you think that there is some version of discussing values that goes on? Or is this part of the curriculum that's been excised in your view to a large degree?
1: Well, I think it's been excised along with a lot of other things in the name of test-driven results. So, you know, it just to give an example, like handwriting <laughs> or, or spelling, right, uh, if if your kids are in many public school systems, they will really learn neither of those things in a serious way anymore, and that's because they're not tested, right? And the schools uh, are really forced to focus on test results, and that has to do with the structure of No Child Left Behind and what it rewards and what it punishes for schools. And, um, but that's, that's to look at skills, right? Um, But of course, like things like character formation get excised too, because schools are institutions that have to uh, deal with the reality that they're operating in, right? And the reality that they're operating in is that the most important measure of their success is how their students are doing on these tests. So it gets excised. But To address the um, claim that it just sounds old-fashioned, really the thing that we need to recognize is that this is just common sense. So schools are communities. A classroom is a community of learners, right? And you don't get community for free. Nobody gets it for free. Students will not feel like they can participate and belong for free. They need to be in a space where they can be respected and understood and heard and feel like they can participate. And that will not happen magically on its own. And the reality is if you go into any classroom in this country, you will find teachers uh, teaching their kids virtue. Because like you have to you have to have something like that to keep the classroom going um however, they won't be doing it in a consistent or perhaps theoretically best sort of way um and I think it would be better to integrate that into the curriculum in a way that reflects best practices, best research. And uh, you can see models for this, for example, uh, in the UK. In the UK, there is the Jubilee Center for Character and Virtues, and uh, they just celebrated their 10-year anniversary. They have developed virtue curriculum across the areas of study that is uh, empirically based, that is philosophically grounded, and that has been enormously successful, enormously successful in throughout the UK. It has been so successful <laughs> that, the Brit- that the government uh, has put character formation as one of their pillars of education. Uh, so now that is something that is assessed when they look at education broadly. Um, there, and that has been done in a way that is not political, that is not religious, that should not in any sense uh, be scary for anyone. And if you look at the curriculum that they've developed and the best practices that they've developed, uh, this is pedagogically serious. Uh, but I also think that the results speak for themselves um, because they have developed not only a curriculum, uh, but they have their own schools now. Uh, that have been based on uh, their framework for character education. Um, And I recommend that anyone who is sort of virtue education curious, uh, go to the Jubilee Center's website and download for free their framework for character education. Uh, And they also have in the past three years developed a framework for virtue education and higher education um and so that sort of thing um is a starting point and i would like to see it come across the pond i would like to see something like that move move into our educational space
0: Jennifer you said that you know this does not have to strike fear and it doesn't have to be political but i think that those realities you know do come into play here what do you say to someone who objects to this sort of on its face and they say well look yeah virtue is important but i don't really want schools to teach my kid their virtues, right? For example, I, I have my own definition of modesty. I don't want the school's version of modesty to be taught. Someone might not want one view coming down from the schools. And when you talk about virtues and so forth, people get nervous about those things. I think I hear what yeah. you're going to say mm-hmm. and, and what you've already said, but you know, what do you say to a person with these doubts?
1: Well, I mean, I would say that um, a lot of those fears are addressed by just looking at the curriculum that's out there. And so that's the first thing I would say. But the second thing I would say is that very few parents, in fact, I've never met any, want their children to go to school and be treated without civility, to be treated in ways that are manifestly unfair and unjust that want their children to be lied to by their peers or bullied, right? Um, Parents want to send their children to schools where children do actually know right from wrong uh, and 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 the children in the school are expected to treat one another in accordance with their dignity as students. And that is really what we're talking about here. And we're talking about it in a way that is more serious schools have moral rules. That's a fact. They have moral rules. And if you break the rules, you get punished. What's not happening is an explanation of the greater context of those rules and why we need them, how they contribute to community and actual human flourishing. Uh, And what we can do, if we wanted to, is incorporate this uh, understanding Of the importance of acting in ways that are in accordance with the dignity of every student for the sake of students being able to learn together in a real community, is that we can put that in a framework that makes sense to them and that helps them to make sense of themselves in light of it. And so it's not just about rewards and punishment, although we will continue to give rewards and punishments, but about helping children understand why this is so important, why it isn't just about school, but is about their whole life and success for their lives. That's really what virtue education is about. And I think it's just common sense.
0: So to repeat back what I've heard, because I think that this is pretty important, and I sort of fundamentally agree with it. It is not that there is a virtue absent school that your child is going to. That place doesn't exist. But there's often places where virtue is sort of unexamined and unexplored. And the the point of education that consciously discusses and questions virtue would be one that picks those things up, looks at them, brings them out for the community to discuss, and should, I would think, develop in students and participants a more conscious grasp of the virtues that you actually live out and thereby, I think, set up a better foundation for those virtues over a longer period. Am I encapsulating the argument?
1: Yeah. I think the goal is to enable children, right, as they progress through education, right? So we're starting from the earliest grades and we're moving up to where you're, you know, young adults. The goal is to help them to see that these rules and these expectations are are fundamental and they go beyond the school. And the reason that you need them is much deeper than the fact that if you don't follow them, you will be punished, right, in various ways. The point is to get them to see that all of this is necessary, right, for human flourishing, because that's actually the goal. And to see them as engaged in a project that's not essentially competitive, right? You're not there to compete for the most, you know, ribbons and bows and to be number one, that you're there to be a part of a community and that it's a learning community, right? And the ribbons and the bows and the honors are important and good and you should strive for them. But that's not the reason that you're there, right? You're there to grow as a community and to engage in this process of learning, right? Not just getting good grades, but learning, right? And to see the value of learning, of seeking after the truth, of growing in knowledge, and understanding that on a deeper level, And I think that if we could, even with baby steps, go back to, yes, it's a more old fashioned model, but I don't meet a lot of parents that are happy (laughs) with contemporary education uh, at at all. Um, I meet a lot of parents who are dissatisfied and they're not dissatisfied for explicitly political reasons. They simply want more for their children, Um, and they don't like all the testing. They don't – it's making their kids anxious, right? Um, They don't like uh, the focus on skills. They can – when you really start talking to parents, because parents, right, remember a different model. I mean, the way that my children are educated and the way I was educated – is very, very different. And when I talk to my parents, it's very different still. And I don't meet that many people who actually think uh, that we're going down a royal road of progress here. And so I think that dissatisfaction is an opportunity to have conversations where you can say, look, there are different models here. And this isn't just theory. We have exemplars, uh, like I said, in the United Kingdom, where we can see that this is actually very, very, very successful. Um, we can measure this. We can assess it. Uh, this isn't just high-minded Victorian talk. <laughs> uh, this is like a, a serious enterprise. And I'm not saying that everyone has to get on board. I actually favor, you know, choice and diversity in education because I think different models of education work for different students. But I would like it to be a more serious option on the table. And I think that uh, one of the most interesting and exciting opportunities that we have, because there's actually been a lot of work done already in the K through 12 space, uh, there's a really exciting opportunity for higher education and particularly for education uh, for general liberal arts education, what we call sort of gen ed. Uh, So this is kind of the education that is necessary for any major, right? Uh, That is a space where the reorientation towards formation, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Uh, And I think there's a lot of interest in it. You know, I'm, I'm incredibly excited about the amount of energy and money and time being put into virtue education in higher education. Um, I I think people are sort of ready for it. I mean what what could be what could possibly be wrong with at least experimenting with it? I mean what do you have to lose?
0: Well let's take a pause here perhaps discordant with our topic but we have a section called grade it. Are you ready, Jennifer?
1: Uh, maybe let's see.
0: Let's see. Uh, <laughs> first off, the hillbilly elegy.
1: Oh my goodness. Yes. (laughs) Oh, I just grade it.
0: You got to give me a grade and and a brief explanation for your grade.
1: (sighs) Okay. This is a tough one for me. I give it a C plus. So the author of Hillbilly Elegy is basically from the same place as me in Ohio. Um, Middletown is about eight minutes from my hometown, Hamilton, and it's basically the same place. Um, And I think I really liked that book in a lot of ways, but it was missing something. Uh, And I'm also a hillbilly, by the way, just to (laughs) throw out my credentials there. (laughs) Hillbilly on both sides. Thank you very much. And um, I thought one thing that was missing from what was otherwise a provocative and interesting uh, book that, of course, hit very, very close to home for me um, is the, the racial dimension to those cultures. Um, there's a lot of really explicit racism that affects those towns. Uh, and also just any anybody who grows up in a in a real hillbilly environment um, is gonna navigate, I mean navigating, the color line is such an important part of that experience. It really wasn't discussed. And so for that reason, I give it a C plus because so it, it didn't feel, it, it didn't feel real that. to me because it was missing that aspect.
0: Fair enough. Harry Truman.
1: Oh, I give him a F.
0: <laughs> University athletics.
1: Wow. This is, <laughs> you guys don't mess around with the questions. Nope. Um, Oof. Uh, okay. First of all, I love sports, um, but there are so many problems there. I give it a C minus.
0: All right. I give it um, a C minus. Letting students choose. This is K twelve. Letting students choose what they read so they develop a passion for reading.
1: F. Give that one an F. That and one's terrible. A- um, because students. Um, I mean that idea that a first grader, you know, really knows what's worth reading. Uh, I think it's a little bit ridiculous. And um, I think it's the job of an educator to put, you know, the the best forms of literature appropriate to that age in front of them and to guide them.
0: All right. Art for art's sake.
1: I give that one a B plus. I think uh, that's probably a true slogan. If you construe it correctly, it can be construed incorrectly, but so for that reason, I give it a B plus. Twitter Twitter <laughs> uh, Twitter, I give a D because I think there's just been all kinds of nonsense going on at Twitter. Um, and, and of course it's a space where virtue is, is difficult to find. Uh, I'm not going to give it an F though, because I'm on Twitter and I owe a lot to Twitter. So I have to at least acknowledge that.
0: Audiobooks.
1: Oh, um, I give it a C. Um, I think that it's really great if you're on a long car ride. But I think that it's still, it would be a mistake to completely uh, switch over to audiobooks. I think that there is a kind of visual component there that's important, uh, especially uh, when you are mastering literary skills. The state of Catholic education
0: in America. Um. And by wow. that, I mean Catholic schools, not not education in Catholic churches. Catholic schools.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> I give it a C. There are some corners of it that I would give an A+. Plus, uh, but I think on the whole, looking at it, there are enough problems that I would give it a C. You just have to, I guess I have to indiscriminately grade it. So I would give it a C. Um, I would give classical Catholic education an A+. Plus.
0: Yes, but a C overall. That I mean C means uh, you know it needs improvement. So that's It needs it uh, definitely
1: difficult. needs improvement. There's been a lot of mission drift and I think far too many Catholic schools have simply just wanted to be another private school.
0: All right. I want to get back to this happiness class you saw it in on Yale, particularly because I, it seems that there's some parallels between it and SEL, or Social and Emotional Learning uh, in K-12. Mm-hmm. Castle is this organization that says, and I'm going to quote here, SEL uh-huh. is the process through which all young people and adults acquire and apply the knowledge, skills, and attitudes to develop healthy identities, manage emotions, and achieve personal and collective goals, feel and show empathy for others, establish and maintain supportive relationships, and make responsible and caring decisions. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's not too many people who are going to say, well, that's that's a bad statement. Right. These are good things right. to focus on. But the teaching here is less centered on things like, well, we do this through literature and history and mm-hmm. sort of less of a liberal arts take and more of, um, you know, we're going to hack kids so that they get the right social, emotional learning. I'm not sure about this, but when you when you hear social emotional learning, do you think it is tacking towards sort of virtue education or do you think that it's trying to replace it with sort of an empty vessel?
1: Well, I I, I wouldn't call it an empty vessel. I think that's a little bit more critical than I would want to be. I applaud it in so far as it is addressing real needs. In many respects, you know, it's a move away from the sort of education that I've been criticizing. And and what I would like, frankly, is for people who are doing work in virtue education um, to to work with people doing social emotional learning to sort of get clearer about points of conversion and points of divergence. Um, again, they're they're doing that in the United Kingdom. I would like to see more of that here in the States. Um, I tend to think that more interdisciplinary kind of dialogue about this would be good. But I think that it's uh, a lesser substitute than the kind of thick virtue education that I would be advocating, and and it comes out a little bit in the in the process talk. I think that in social emotional learning, um, you have it's it is more of a technical approach, whereas I think virtue education tries to reach students on a more personal level, um, and gets them to think about things in terms of deliberation and choices and ways of seeing things and understanding it in a thicker, richer, more personal way. Um, But I think that there's a lot of opportunity between classical educators and people who are in the kind of social, emotional learning space to work together together yeah, that's, that's what I would say. I mean, I, I work a lot in my own research. I work a lot uh, with people in the social sciences who have a different conception than I do of what virtue is and what human flourishing is. Uh, I've done a lot of hard work with those people. And I think there's been a lot of, um, I would say, mutual... Uh, give and take between us that has led people on both sides to come to positions that are more conciliatory. And you have seen like real learning and benefit from that. And I would just like to see more opportunities for that to happen here. Um, I'm sure that there's something that we can learn from the social emotional learning people. Uh, I myself am not an expert in it, And so, uh, you know, I kind of know the basics, but I think that it's good insofar as it recognizes a need for emotional regulation, right, self-control, ability to uh, relate on a personal level in the classroom. All of that's actually very critical to an education. The only question is, you know, how are they operationalizing this stuff? And how does that operationalization affect what ends up being the pedagogy?
0: In our last few minutes, I want to turn a little bit back towards higher ed. As we talked about at the beginning, there's a sense that we've lost some of the moorings uh, of talking about virtue, of examining sort of things from a broader perspective. I mean, this is this is a problem that you could say, well, look, we're not looking for a sort of a unified pursuit of truth, broadly speaking. We're, we're looking at these things more in a, a set of niches um, mm-hmm. rather than understanding the universe and our place in it as a, a North Star for higher education. I mean, My question is this, you know, it sounds like you could uh, address this in a number of ways. And one would be, well, everybody needs to take a philosophy requirement, right? Like, let's make sure that that's part of this. And that may be good, you know, extra philosophy classes could be good. Uh, but it also Depends seems. On the teacher. What's that? <laughs> well, yes. Depends certainly. on the teacher. <laughs> well, but you know, I, so I guess the question is: Do we need larger philosophy departments, or do we need philosophers in all departments? And that's my question. And also, how do we get from where we are now to there?
1: Yeah. So I wish I could say that professional philosophers are going to save the day, but sadly, I don't believe this, so I can't say it. Um, I think that there's no little requirement here or there that's going to fix this problem. Um, I think that what you need for general education is an integrated, unified liberal arts curriculum that, um, because the way that Gen Ed typically goes now, um, it's been so watered down that it's just a list of requirements, right? Right. These requirements have uh, certain indicators as course numbers, and it's almost like a little buffet, right? Like, I need my foreign language. I need my math. I need my natural science. I need my humanities or whatever you can go. And then you could take anything in there. Uh, your humanities class could be like, uh, you know, um, just just a class on queering Jane Austen or a class on um, I mean, who knows, right? It, my point is not that there's anything wrong with that class, but it could it could literally just be anything in the humanities. And uh, so it could be a philosophy class, whatever. Um, but even if you threw in a philosophy requirement, like, I don't know, maybe you take a class in metaphysics. Okay, that's great. <laughs> it's not clear to me how that uh, helped you to become more free. But that's right? not that's In not the r-
0: change you're 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 looking for. Absolutely not. Absolutely, for, not. Right? Absolutely not.
1: Um, Absolutely not. The problem with that is is indicative of a of a of a larger problem, which is the idea that it's it's all about consumer choice. It's like, what do you want to study? That's not a real liberal arts education. In my opinion, um, a real liberal arts education has to be a serious integrated unified thing with certain obvious goals. And I, I personally think that the best approach to this is a kind of curriculum like you have at Columbia University, which has this famous uh, gen ed curriculum uh, that is grounded in a specific tradition of inquiry that students study in a serious way in accordance with what we would loosely call a method, right? The method of dialectics where you have a seminar where it's based on uh, addressing dialectical questions, which is a question that is open to contrary answers, right? And there is a recognition that we can study these questions through kind of, you know, the best of what has been thought and said, within a, tr- a specific tradition of inquiry, and we can make progress. And these are the sorts of questions that are most essential for a young person to ask themselves. What is a good human being and citizen? What is justice? You know, what is, um, what, what is the meaning of a human life, of my life? Like, where do I fit in all of this? Uh, these are the sorts of questions. What is courage? Why would you need it? These are the sorts of questions that the curriculum is explicitly aimed at addressing. You see how responses and ways of addressing these questions change over time in accordance with material changes in society and political changes. And you do this in a serious way over the course of, say, three years within a community of people who are studying the same texts. And it has real potential for... Profound transformation. And that's what you're looking for in higher education. Now, is everyone going to be transformed by this? Absolutely not. You can't guarantee anything with education, but you can create the conditions for that to happen. And I think that this is a kind of model where you have an integrated curriculum, you have a community of learners, you have a kind of method of dialectics. And you can go from there. And I think that within that space, there's a lot of work for a more explicit virtue framework to get a lot of traction. So that's what I would be looking for.
0: Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat and Malchus, And special thanks to our guest, Jennifer Frey. We'll include a link to some of Professor Frey's work in the show notes. You can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a moment to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at AEI.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malcolm.